The following sermon, entitled Turning Away from Adultery, was preached on the morning of February 27, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open the sacred scriptures this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel 11, we will read the first 17 verses, the account of David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba. This is the inspired and therefore infallible Word of our God. It came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. It came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness. And she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived, and sent and told David and said, I am a child. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how, they, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house. And there followed him a mess of meat from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thy house? And Uriah said unto David, the ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house and eat to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also and tomorrow I will send, I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city 
that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. We end our Scripture reading at that point. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 41. This is found in the back of our songbooks on page 23. So after all of the songs, page 23, Lord's Day 41 of the Heidelberg Catechism. There we read, What doth the seventh commandment teach us? That all uncleanness is accursed of God, and that therefore we must with all our hearts detest the same and live chastely and temperately, whether in holy wedlock or in single life. Doth God forbid in this commandment only adultery and such like gross sins? Since both our body and soul are temples of the Holy Ghost, He commands us to preserve them pure and holy. Therefore, He forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men thereto. In the seventh commandment, God's word to His people is, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And drawing from Scripture, as well as the Heidelberg Catechism, we see that there are many, many different ways to violate this commandment. For Christ Himself taught us that whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already in his heart. The Heidelberg Catechism teaches us that God here forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men thereto. So that the reality is there are hundreds of different ways that we can be guilty of sinning against the seventh commandment from the physical act of adultery to any and all distortions of God's design for marriage to watching pornography to even sinful thoughts about another. It's all sin. But sadly, though for the most part we know that it's all sinful, yet there's a part of us that's inclined toward this sin, that's bent on committing this sin. There's a part of us that really loves this sin and the pleasure the pleasures associated with it. So that this is not merely a sin out there in the world, but this is a sin found very much so here in the church of Jesus Christ. So the question becomes, how are we ever going to turn away from this sin? Since it's true that within my heart there's a part of me that so loves this sin, how am I ever going to so hate this sin that I put, away, put it away from my heart and life? Well, the goal of this sermon is to help us in that respect. The goal of this sermon is to help us address this sin in our hearts and lives by understanding this sin more thoroughly, more carefully, 
and by giving us every reason to turn away from the sin of adultery. So this morning, we consider the seventh commandment and Lord's Day 41 of the Heidelberg Catechism using as our theme, turning away from adultery. Notice the typo in the bulletin. Adultery with an A, not idolatry with an I. Turning away from adultery, first, by knowing our covenant theology. Second, we are to turn away from it by recognizing the devil's tactics. And third, we do so by trusting our bridegroom. How are we to turn away from the sin of idolatry? Well, it begins with knowing our covenant theology. And here in this first point, we establish the basic foundation for this seventh commandment. We consider the underlying theology, and we do so to help us understand why God forbids adultery. And there are really two main foundational truths that we need to look at here. First, a right theology concerning marriage. And second, a right theology concerning the Spirit. And we can put both of them, as we will see, under the umbrella, the heading of covenant theology. So first, we need a right theology concerning marriage. Because if we ask, why does God forbid adultery and other such like gross sins, the answer is because of the fact that it goes against God's own design for sex and for marriage. Specifically, God gave sex to be enjoyed between one man and one woman within marriage. That's God's plan. That's God's design for sex and marriage. One man, one woman, together in marriage, and sex is to be enjoyed only there. And we see this already at the beginning with Adam and Eve. We see God instituting marriage. And that first marriage is between one man and one woman. And it was only within that relationship that a man may know his wife intimately even as Adam knew his wife Eve. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in Hebrews 13, verse 4. We read, marriage is honorable and all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. And so the reason all these different sins that we could list as violations of the seventh commandment are wrong is because they go against God's design. This is why fornication is wrong. Having intimacy before marriage because it's not within marriage. One man, one woman in the bond of marriage. This is why adultery is wrong. That is, the sin of intimacy between a man, someone who's married and someone who is not their spouse because now you no longer have one man, one woman, but you have a, a third party being brought in. This is why remarriage after divorce is sinful. Because in such a case, though, divorce is permitted in the case of fornication or adultery, nevertheless, that fornication or adultery does not absolve or break the marriage bond. And thus, to become remarried is again to bring a third party in so that it's no longer one man, one woman, but you have three. That's against God's design for marriage. This is why polygamy is wrong. The sin that David and many others were guilty of having more than one wife because it doesn't fit with one man and one woman. There was one man with many women. 
And this is also why homosexuality is wrong. Because God's design is not two men or two women, but one man, one woman, and sex is to be enjoyed only in the context of a marriage that looks like that. So that explains the seventh commandment. And God, being the one to institute marriage, to give this good gift of sex, He has every right to determine what is right and wrong with how these are to be used. But now we need to back up a step further. Because we can also ask the question, well, why is that God's design? Why did He determine that this is what a marriage should look like and this is where sex should be enjoyed? And the answer to that question is because marriage is meant to be a picture of God's covenant of grace with His people. Of that relationship, that bond of love and intimacy between God and His people. Or to put it in different terms, marriage is meant to be a picture between the relationship between Christ as our bridegroom and His bride, the church. That's what Paul teaches us in Ephesians chapter 5. And the key is that with, in whatever terms you put it, that relationship is an exclusive relationship. No one else can be brought into that covenant or into belonging to the bridegroom of Jesus Christ. And what is more, the gift of sex is meant to be a picture of the intimacy that we enjoy within that relationship as God's covenant people. It's meant to symbolize the closeness that we experience with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, God forbids the misuse of it because it's taking this beautiful picture and it's twisting it. It's distorting it. And thereby really brings dishonor to the reality to which it points. That's why God forbids adultery and all other such sins that fit under the broad umbrella of the Seventh Commandment. But now we might ask, what does any of this have to do with turning away from this sin? Well, most fundamentally, it helps us understand why this sin is wrong. And we've made that point clear. But now, perhaps more importantly, we need to recognize that what all this means is that when we turn to sexual pleasure for satisfaction, what we're doing is trying to get out of a picture what can only be found in the reality. Have you ever thought about this sin in that way? That you're looking to a mere symbol for the satisfaction that can only possibly come from the thing that it symbolizes, namely, life with God. And that's important to point out so that we recognize the foolishness of this sin. Because child of God, there's only one thing that can satisfy the longings of your soul. That's life with God. There's only one person who can give you true joy, true happiness. That's Jesus Christ. 
And it's crucially important that we're mindful of that. In the hour of temptation, wherein we're inclined to seek our gratification from sexual pleasure, we need to step back and recognize it's just a picture. It's only a symbol. Why would I look there? When I can turn to the reality. And you see how that helps us turn away from the sin. It reminds us to turn to Jesus Christ. Because any and all turning that's a part of conversion is not only a turning away from sin, it's a turning unto God. Otherwise, it's not true conversion. Otherwise, it will never last. And thus, we need to turn to Jesus Christ in whom alone is found true joy and happiness rather than thinking we can get that from a mere dim picture. So do you see why it's important to lay the groundwork to have this theology in place? Do you see how we can use our theology and apply it to help us turn away from these sins? We need a right theology concerning marriage if we're ever going to turn away from the sin. We also need a right theology concerning the Spirit. Because that's the other part of why this sin is wrong. It's sin against the Holy Spirit. And that's where the Catechism points us in question and answer 109 when it begins the answer saying, since both our body and soul are temples of the Holy Ghost, He commands us to preserve them pure and holy. Why are we to live pure and holy lives? Because our bodies are temples. And here, the Catechism is clearly drawing from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 and 19, we read this, Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? This passage is teaching is the astounding truth that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. A temple is very simply the, the place where a deity lives. And wonder of wonders, the Spirit of God has come to live and to dwell within us. And again, this ties back to the truth of the covenant. It fits under that broad umbrella because this is a part of God's covenant with us. When God makes us His people, He promises to come and live and to dwell with us and among us. That was the whole symbolism of that Old Testament tabernacle. God dwelling in the midst of His people. And this was what one of the ways in which Christ Himself was the fulfillment of the covenant. Because with the coming of Jesus Christ, we truly had God with us. We had Emmanuel. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. But now even though He has ascended up into heaven, He is still with us in that He sends His Spirit to live and dwell within our hearts. And that's a part of His covenant promise to us. That He now lives within our hearts through His Spirit. And it's exactly because this is true that God forbids all adultery and fornication. Because the reality is that when we 
commit this sin, we're sinning against our own bodies. That's what 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18 teaches us. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. And the seriousness here is that our bodies are not our own. But our bodies belong to Jesus Christ. That's verse 20. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Body belongs to Jesus Christ. Our body is now the temple of the Spirit of Christ. And because that's true, that only aggravates the sin against the seventh commandment. So are we going to sin against the Spirit of Christ? Because when we walk in sins against the seventh commandment, that's exactly what we're doing. We are grieving the Spirit of Christ. And now we grieve the Spirit of Christ anytime we walk impenitently in a sin. But in light of what we just went through in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that's especially true when we walk in sins against the seventh commandment. We must not grieve the Holy Spirit by taking our bodies which He has sanctified and joining them to a harlot. We must not grieve the Holy Spirit by taking the eyes and the mind that He has illuminated and using them to lust. And if that does not seem like a very big deal to you, remember who we're talking about here. This is not just some unwanted house guest. This is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This is the third person of the Trinity. This is the God of heaven and earth we're talking about. And what is more, remember what it took. Remember the price that had to be paid for Him to come and live and dwell within us. The only reason we've been given the Holy Spirit and the life that He gives is because Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. The gift of the Holy Spirit is like every other blessing of salvation. The only basis for it is the saving work of Jesus Christ. He earned this right, this privilege for the Spirit to come and dwell within us. And are we going to scorn that? Are we going to despise that? By now taking our bodies and using them to sin in this way. Understanding that the Holy Spirit now lives and dwells within us is a part of how we turn away from this sin of adultery. And all that then is under the theme of turning away from it by understanding our covenant theology. But now with that foundation in place, there's more that we need to say because another part of turning away from the sin of adultery 
is by recognizing the tactics of the devil. The devil wants to allure us. The devil is the one who tempts us. And that means if we're going to turn away from this sin, first of all, we need to see through the bait that he holds out and to recognize the hook that stands behind that bait that's being hidden by that bait. And the bait, the allure that the devil holds out very simply, is the prospect of physical pleasure. It's that simple. The devil entices us by holding out sexual gratification. Something that can be happen right here, right now, in this moment. The devil whispers in our ear, it will feel so good. And though it's not hard to identify the bait, that does not make it any less dangerous because the reality is that this bait, perhaps more than other, any other, is a strong allure for all those who are fallen in Adam. Because is there any other sin that we are more inclined to commit even though, even though we know full well that it's wrong? David knew what he was about to do with Bathsheba was wrong. The issue was not a lack of understanding. And so it is for us. The issue rarely is that we fail to see it as sinful. The issue is that we know full good and well that it is sinful. And we do it anyway. And thus, it's easy to believe the researchers who tell us For example, that watching pornography is more addictive than some of the most dangerous drugs that are out there. Say again, we find that easy to believe because we recognize the allure of this sin. So that's first and foremost the bait the devil holds out. But there's more, is there not? Because the prospect of physical pleasure does not fully explain why we are so tempted, why we are so inclined to walk in this sin. Because it does not fully explain why, for example, women are tempted to dress immodestly, to show more skin. To wear outfits that are going to draw attention. What we've said this far does not fully explain why young men might be so inclined to work out, to put on muscle mass, to dress, dress in a stylish fashion themselves. What stands behind that is our sinful desire to be desired by others. Because quite frankly, it feels good to get that kind of attention. 
It's not just lusting after another, but it's wanting to be lusted at. That's a part of it. Whether that extended look, whether those flattering words are welcome or not, the reality is that they feel good. And the devil knows this. The devil uses this. This is a part of the bait. The desire to be desired by another. And perhaps, we do not know for sure, but perhaps, this explains why Bathsheba was bathing the way that she was in full view of the king. So the bait that the devil holds out is the prospect of physical pleasure primarily, but then also the prospect of being desired, of being lusted at after by another. But we need to recognize that this bait is worthless. It's vain. It's empty. And with regard to the first part of it, the key is that the prospect of physical pleasure, it's only momentary. It lasts but a short while and that needs to be said needs to be said so that when we are tempted, we can respond to the devil. We can say to our own souls, it's not worth it. It's not worth offending, provoking my covenant God, my Savior Jesus Christ for physical pleasure that's going to last but a short, short time. It's not worth it because what comes next? What comes next is the guilt, the shame of sin, knowing that I have provoked God. It's not worth it. That's how we respond to that part of the temptation. And with regard to the prospect of being desired by another, we must not allow ourselves to be convinced of the lie of the devil that we're going to find satisfaction in that. Because the reality is that we are only ever going to want more. Yes, we might catch someone's eye by the way that we dress. But even if that happens, even if there's a moment of pleasure in that, it's only going to leave us wanting more so that we're not content with just catching that one person's eye. We want to catch everyone's eye so that This sin really becomes a form of slavery, of bondage, of being governed by others. But now the key is, whatever part of the bait is more alluring to us, the key is to go back to the underlying theology. What is going to bring happiness, joy, and contentment? It's life with God. It's resting in our Savior Jesus Christ. Whatever pleasure may come from sexual gratification is but a pale, dim picture compared to the reality. And with regard to being desired by others, is it not enough that He delights in you? 
Is it not enough that as a part of His bride, He can't take His eyes off of you, church? And not just because He's trying to get something out of you. Not just because He's looking for a one-night stand. But because He loves you with an everlasting love. Because you are His bride whom He's adorned with His own righteousness. Child of God, do not take the bait. But instead, turn to the reality. And do so also recognizing that there is indeed a hook. The devil holds out the bait. We need to see it's vain, it's empty, it's worthless. But we also need to see that standing behind that bait, hidden in that bait, is the hook. There are consequences to this sin. From a general point of view, the consequences are that this sin brings all manner of trouble. What trouble came upon David for his sin with Bathsheba? There were consequences to his sin. God told him, on account of this sin, the sword is never going to depart from your house, David. You're going to have child murdering child. You're going to have your own son trying to take the throne away from you. And what you did in secret, David, it's going to be done openly with your wives. God is going to give them to your neighbor. And as for that child that's going to be born, that child's going to die. David, there are consequences to this sin, and so it is for us. Consequences of a complete breakdown of trust in a marriage. The consequence perhaps of a sexually transmitted disease. And those are but two examples. We could give many more. This sin brings trouble is the point. That's a part of the hook. What is more, a part of the hook is that this sin disrupts, it interrupts that covenant fellowship that we enjoy with our God. And now again, this is really true of any and all sins that we walk in impenitently. But because of the foundation that we laid, because we took the time to see how marriage is a picture of the life that we enjoy with God and how sex is a picture that points to the intimacy of that fellowship that we enjoy with God, we circle back to that and recognize that when we walk in sins against the seventh commandment, and we do so impenitently, the result is that our experience of that covenant fellowship is going to be interrupted. God will hide His face from us. That too is part of the hook. But ultimately, the hook, the consequence is the punishment for this sin is death. It's true in the Old Testament. The civil law required death by stoning of those caught in this sin. This was Solomon's warning again and again to his son in the book of Proverbs. Why do you stay away from the house of the strange woman? Because her house is the way to hell. Going down to the chambers of death. This sin brings death both 
physical and spiritual, both temporal and eternal. And thus it could not be, this could not be more serious. And therefore, it's crucially important that we recognize, see through the bait that the devil holds out, while at the same time recognizing the hook and see it as a warning against this sin. But now there's more that needs to be said regarding the devil's tactics and how we need to address them. We started with the bait and the hook. But now we also need to see when we are most vulnerable to this, to falling into this sin. Because in his cunning, the devil is careful in his timing of when he seeks to draw us astray, when he goes after us with this temptation. And we need to see our weaknesses. We need to see when we are most susceptible to falling into the sin. And there are three things here that need to be said. First, we're most vulnerable when we are idle or lazy. And that comes out in this history. And David's fall into this sin. It's not without reason that we have the introduction to this history that we find in verse 1 of the chapter that we read. Verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11 reads, "...and it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. His army's out fighting, and as king, he should be out there with them, leading them. But instead, he's back at his palace. He was being idle. He was neglecting his duties as a king, and thus he was an easy target. And so it is for us. It's when we are idle, when we're just squandering away time, when we're just roaming the internet, that we are most inclined to fall into this sin. And that underscores the importance of putting away the sin of laziness because we recognize laziness can lead to this sin. This underscores the importance of being diligent in whatever calling God has given to us with whatever station that He's put us in. And this means even with respect to our recreational time, it's best used by being engaged in some activity. Even if that activity is simple as reading, it should not be that we just sit around and squander the time because when we're idle, we're vulnerable. That first of all. Second, we're vulnerable especially when we are down and discouraged. And we say that in light of the history in the book of Esther and the sin of Ahasuerus the king. When was it that Ahasuerus says, let there be fair young virgins sought for the king and let the maiden which pleases the king be queen? 
Well, the historical context is that Ahasuerus has just got back from battle. Specifically, a battle in which he was defeated badly by the Greeks. He was down. He was discouraged. And what does he do to make himself feel better? He calls for a contest that involves another fair young virgin coming to his bedchamber night after night after night. He turned to sex. And that's the temptation for us too. When things don't go our way, when this or that does not work out, the temptation is to try to make ourselves feel better by turning to sins against the seventh commandment. Now the response here is obviously not, well, do not ever allow yourself to become down or discouraged. That's not helpful. But the key is recognizing that in that situation, I'm weak. I'm susceptible. And thus turning to God, both regarding whatever difficulty we're facing, and putting our trust in His providence regarding that difficulty, but also turning to Him for defense, knowing that if we are down and discouraged, that devil, the lion, is prowling about seeking whom He might devour. Because He preys on us when we're being idle or lazy. He preys on us when we're down and discouraged. And third, He does so especially when we're alone. And here we turn to the history of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Joseph was alone. He was far away from his church family, from his physical family. And as for Potiphar's wife, she wanted to be alone. Just the two of them. And though Joseph in the end does flee away from this sin and temptation, we still can look at the situation and see the devil's tactics. The devil wants us alone. He wants to draw us away from the safety that's found in Numbers. He wants us behind closed doors with the lights turned down dim. That underscores the importance of accountability, of having others to hold us accountable with regard to keeping ourselves pure and holy. This underscores the importance of having software on our phones, our tablets, our devices that we're going to block any explicit content that would otherwise come up. And all of this fits under the category of recognizing the devil's tactics of when especially he comes after us with this sin so that we can be on guard. So under the broad heading of recognizing the devil's tactics, first we looked at the bait that he holds out, saw that it's worthless, and saw the hook that's being had. We've seen when we're most vulnerable to committing this sin, But what about when we feel that allure? What about when we are being enticed? What's what's our countering move? That's the other part that we need to see in this second point. Our countering tactics that we are to use with regard to turning away from this sin. And there's really two of them. Number one, flee. 
run. And we say that in light of 1 Corinthians 16, 6, verse 18, where Paul says, flee fornication. Not stand and try to fight it, but turn tail and run. That's not cowardice. That's wisdom. This is what Joseph did. He fled that house. He was not under the false presumption that he could continue to withstand the onslaught of the devil in this respect. He didn't try to enter into negotiations. He ran. And you understand this is so important exactly because of the the nature, the character of the sin. Namely, it's a sin that strengthens its grip on us over time. So we see with David, there's a progression to his sin. First, he's standing on top of his house and he's looking and lusting. And then he's inquiring, who is this woman? Then he's sending messengers. And then all of it leads to him in bed with this woman. Over time, this temptation strengthened its grip on David. It was dragging him in. And that's the, the nature of the sin. The nature of the sin is not that if we indulge a little, we're left satisfied. But the nature of the sin is if we indulge a little, we want it all the more. And it's exactly because that's true that the countering tactic is not stand and fight. The countering tactic is turn and run. Flee the temptation. And when you run, be sure you run to someone. Do not just ran, run randomly, helter-skelter, but run to someone. If you're married, run to your spouse. Because remember, God gave sex to be enjoyed in the bond of marriage. And there it is indeed a good gift of God. It's a bonding agent to bring us closer together as husband and wife. It's meant to be enjoyed there. It has a good place there. So if you're married, run to your spouse. And if you're unmarried, and really, whether you are unmarried or married, run to Christ. And once again, we tie it back to the foundation. Because it's only in Christ that we're going to find that joy, that happiness, that satisfaction. Turn to Him. Turn to your Bridegroom. To His love for you. That's where we run when we flee this sin. So our first countering tactic is to run. Flee to Christ. Second, we counter the devil by repenting of this sin. And it's so crucial that we repent because that's the only way out of that grip, that death grip, that this sin, this temptation otherwise has on us so long as we refuse to repent. The grip gets stronger and stronger and stronger. We are to repent as David repented. 
Yes, it took him far too long to be sorry for his sins, but when we get to chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, David does indeed repent of his sin. Chapter 12, verse 13, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David recognized that he had sinned and he turned from it. He confessed it as sin and sought forgiveness. And it's crucial that we do the same. And that we repent of even the smallest beginnings of this sin. In other words, we are not to wait to repent until after the gratification. But we are to repent of the sin while it's still, if we can even call it that, small. Here's what David should have done when he was on top of that house, having already looked. What he should have done is repented of that sin while it was still in his head and in his heart. Confessing that lustful look as sin and seeking forgiveness. Confessing the lustful desires of the heart as sin and seeking forgiveness of them. Because so long as we try to address this sin on the level of our actions and our words, we've already lost. Instead, the sin needs to be addressed at the level of our thoughts. At the level of our desires. And we need to repent at that level already. And the encouragement to repent is that there is indeed forgiveness. And you can trust your bridegroom for that. And that brings us then to the third point of the sermon. Trusting our bridegroom. That's how we turn away from the sin of adultery. We trust in Him first of all for forgiveness. Because there is forgiveness for this sin. And this history is proof. King David committed the most egregious form of this sin. But yet he was forgiven. That's chapter 12, verse 13. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. There's forgiveness. Have you fallen into this sin? Did you come to church this morning with guilt and shame in your heart? Then go to the cross. Confess this sin. And find forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. Because that's the basis. And that too is implied in what Nathan says here to David. Nathan said to David, The Lord hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. How can he say you're not going to die? We already said death is the punishment. Because another would die on his behalf. David's son would die on his behalf. Not that first son born of Bathsheba, but the son of David, born of the Virgin Mary. He would come and as the King of kings, 
He would lay down His life. He would die on our behalf. And now once again, to tie it back to where we started, remember what that meant for Him. It meant the interruption of covenant life with God. And now to be sure, Jesus Christ more than any other knows what perfect covenantal life and fellowship with God is like. He's the one who's been in the bosom of the Father from all eternity. But for three hours, as He hung there on the cross, He did not know covenant joy and life and happiness with the Father. All He knew was the wrath and displeasure and anger of God against our sin. But because He died on our behalf, but because He endured the punishment we deserve, there is forgiveness. And note well, there is forgiveness even if there are also consequences. Because some of us do feel the effects of this sin still to this day. David would feel them, but that in no way detracted from the forgiveness he also knew. Because this word of pardon that Nathan speaks to David is sandwiched right in the middle of all that Nathan has to say about the consequences that are coming upon David for his sin. Right in the middle of it. God hath put away your sin. And what's that teaching? And what that is teaching us is that even if there are still consequences for our sin, that in no way eliminates the forgiveness or somehow undermines the forgiveness. But instead, the consequences are part of God's providential provision for His people to remind us of the seriousness of our sin, to keep us from going back to it. So in turning away from the sin, we trust our Bridegroom. We look to Him for forgiveness. But we also look to Him, secondly, for righteousness. Because it's only as those who are righteous in Christ that we can possibly have this fellowship with God. We recognize we are not righteous in of ourselves. We cannot keep God's law perfectly. And therefore, we turn to the One who did keep it perfectly on our behalf, including the Seventh Commandment. Jesus Christ is the One who lived chastely and temperately His whole life. Every interaction that He ever had with a woman was pure. That's quite something. Because undoubtedly, at least some of these women that He interacted with were beautiful. And what is more, we do know that some of these women whom Jesus interacted with were not so pure themselves. Jesus Christ had women who were previously harlots come to Him seeking forgiveness. And in every instance, He lived a life that was pure and holy. Not once. Not even once. Did Jesus Christ look upon a woman to lust after her and thereby commit adultery in His heart? Not once did Jesus do what David did and use His position 
to get what He wanted. But instead, our Lord Jesus Christ kept the seventh commandment perfectly His whole life long. And that scene even more, His commitment to the seventh commandment comes out even more in His commitment to us. His bride. And whether we actually make this a part of His obedience or whether we simply say this shows us His commitment to the seventh commandment, either way, the point still stands. Jesus Christ was and remains ever faithful to us. Jesus Christ never entertains the thought of going after another lover because He has set His love upon you, the church, His bride from all eternity. And in His faithfulness, He laid down His life to cleanse us from all of our sins. And again, that shows His commitment to the seventh commandment so that in the end, we look to Christ for our righteousness. How can we ever have life with God? How can we ever be given the gift of the Holy Spirit? Not because we're righteous in ourselves, but because we're righteous in Christ with His perfect obedience imputed to us by faith. And does not the thought of this all, the thought that there is forgiveness, that we are righteous in Him, does that not make you thankful, child of God? Because that's the point we're getting at here in this third point. Our hearts should be overwhelmed with gratitude for the salvation that we have in Him. And it's that gratitude that's going to drive a life of obedience. That's the motivation. Everything else we said is important. But without this part, without gratitude for salvation swelling in our hearts, none of what we said before will do us any good. It's only when we look at the cross and recognize it was my unfaithfulness that put Him there. It's only when we're overwhelmed by the thought that He would lay down His life for me that we will ever make a small beginning in turning away from the sin. So may God fill our hearts with thankfulness. May He make us wise in our dealings with the devil. And may He remind us of that glorious covenant of grace that He established with us, His people. Amen. Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word. Apply it to our hearts and cause it to bear fruit in our lives. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.